This summer, our sermons are focusing on the wisdom of God, that we need to know the true perspective in order to live life, that we need God to define for us good and evil, right and wrong, what is wise and what is foolish, that we don't want to be deceived, we don't want to be fools doing what is wrong, but we want to know the truth. And so we're looking at the books of Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes this summer, thinking about what is the wisdom of God and how does it shape our lives. But in those books, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, we see a repeated mention of the wicked as this group of people opposed to God's people, this group of wicked people. Now, for us in modern American culture, the idea of a group of wicked people doesn't exactly fly with us. We tend to think that all people, we're we're pretty good, that there's a whole bunch of at least neutral or mostly good people in the world, and the idea of a group of wicked people seems like it's straight out of the movies, the bad guys, or the bad guys on TV, or maybe like there are some nations far, far away that are wicked, or nations long, long ago that were wicked, but right now, really, who are the wicked? And so we have to confront ourselves with the text and figure out, okay, well, what do we do with these references to the wicked? Do we need to take these references and conform them to our modern view that people aren't that bad? And yeah, there's some really bad people, but the wicked, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Or do we need to take our modern understanding and bring it to the Bible to be shaped by the Bible? And what the Bible has to say about the wicked Perhaps our perspective is the one that needs to be challenged and shaped by Scripture. And so our sermon passage today from Psalm 36 helps us to do that. And we see in here a clear description of the wicked and how they are opposed to God. It helps us make sense of life in a broken and often evil world. And so we're going to look at Psalm 36. If you want to open up your Bible, Psalms is pretty much in the middle of the Bible. It's between Job and Proverbs, and we're going to be in Psalm 36 reading the whole thing. It's a song written by David, and so we see this song describing the wicked and our hope against the wicked. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 36, verses 1 through 12. This is from the English Standard Version. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. 
Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us and you have given us your word. You have revealed the truth to us. You have not hidden it so that we have to come find it, but you have spoken it so that it can be heard. And Father, I pray today that the truth would be heard, that you would use me in spite of my own sin, my own uh, inadequacies, my own wicked tendencies to bring forth your truth by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and minds to hear your word today as your word, and that you would change us to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage today from Psalm 36 gives us a glimpse of our faithful God. And the big idea I want us to see is that our faithful God provides a refuge for the righteous in Jesus Christ that ultimately ensures victory over the wicked. That our faithful God provides a refuge for the righteous in Jesus Christ that ensures ultimate victory over the wicked. And so in this song that David is singing here and that he has wrote for us, we see three movements. There are some abrupt changes and some subtle changes. But first, he gives us a picture of the wicked, a sober picture of the wicked, before giving us the greatness of our God and finally showing us how he calls on God for help. So Psalm 36 starts with a look at the wicked in verses 1 through 4. And in those verses, we may think, well, I'm kind of like that at times. And that's true. We can be like that. But here he's speaking specifically of the wicked, of people that are completely and totally opposed to God, that this is very much who they are. This is not Christians he's speaking of in verses 1 through 4. It's not the people of God, but it is those opposed to God. And it is not a pretty picture. What we see right away is the delusion of sin. Here's what verse 2 says. For he, the wicked man, flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. See, the wicked person tells himself what he wants to hear and doesn't think that anyone will figure out the evil that he is doing. He thinks he can sin without punishment, without consequences, without anyone coming to expose his sins. See, the wicked man does not believe that God will judge him and really doesn't believe there is a God at all. He's so deluded to think that God's judgment can be avoided as easily as clearing your browsing history, that he has no fear that his own wickedness will come back on his head. And that delusion of the wicked makes them dangerous. That delusion leads to danger. Imagine if you had someone operating on you who was not trained in a surgeon, but thought delusionally that they would be a great surgeon. Catastrophe would follow. That delusion would lead to danger. Imagine that someone was impersonating a police officer untrained in what to do in various situations. The horrors that would unfold if that person delusionally thought that they should be the law. I mean, we see it in funny ways in the old show American Idol. 
where people delusionally think that they can actually sing and they stand up and are in danger of complete and total public ridicule. That delusion leads to danger. Whether it's a kid who thinks he knows how to swim jumping in the deep end of the pool or whether it is the wicked thinking that there is no judgment to come, delusion leads to danger. And this is the kind of danger in verses 3 through 4. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. If wickedness is unchecked, there's never a reason to stop being wicked. If we have no fear that someone is going to judge us or condemn us for our wickedness, then why would we ever stop? If we think we can get away with it, then what's the big deal? I can get away with it. We see that it is simply rejecting evil, no longer doing good. They are plotting on their bed, how can I do evil tomorrow? David is telling us in these first four verses, do not underestimate the wicked. There's no telling what someone may do if they have no fear of consequences or judgment for their actions. And so with those verses in mind, it can be hard for us to imagine that there isn't wickedness in this world. And yet many of us do doubt wickedness. But all we need to do is look back in history to see ready examples in every age Perhaps the most common example that we look back to or immediately our minds go to is Nazi Germany. But what people tend to implicitly believe is that those people were a different kind of people who are somehow now extinct. And yet those people who committed those horrors against people were people themselves, people like us, human beings, They were people who were more concerned about their own motives and their own culture than they were about the judgment of a holy God. And what that shows us is that wickedness is not always derived from what we're doing and the severity of our actions, but the depravity of our hearts. That wickedness is not the severity of what we do wrong, but the depravity of what is inside of us. See, the greatest indicator of wickedness is not the worst possible sins, but it is whether or not we fear God. Wickedness is dangerous because it is delusional, and the delusion of unbelief leads to great danger and wickedness. And so in this way, we can understand that delusion. Though he's here speaking about the wicked, like the wicked, we all can forget about God from time to time. We can think that somehow we have sinned in such a sneaky way that maybe God didn't see it. Or we can forget that there is a God who will hold us to account. We can doubt and deceive ourselves. We can plot evil and plan to sin, hiding our sins from others, forgetting that there is a God who sees everything who will judge. And so the root problem for the wicked and the wickedness in our own hearts is that there is no fear of God, that there is no fear of God, and instead of fear of God, transgression is speaking deep in our hearts, as it says in verse 1, and when that is the case, God is not accounted for. We are only listening to the sin, and yet David's song out of nowhere in verse 5 changes key. 
it abruptly changes in verse 5. David had been speaking all about the wicked, and then in verse 5, everything changes. He bursts forth in praise for the greatness of God. It's like David is thinking to himself, all right, that's enough about the wicked. Let's hear about God. And what that shows us is what separates the righteous from the wicked is a picture and a belief in God. Is God accounted for in our thoughts? Do we have a right vision of God? You see, in verses 1 through 4, there is an inward, almost claustrophobic nature. It's focused on that person, the wicked person. It's talking about his heart, his eyes, his mouth, his bed, that the wicked man looks to himself, and yet David calls our eyes heavenward in verses 5 through 9. He talks about your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your righteousness, your judgment, your house, your delights. Verses 1 through 4 told us, do not underestimate the wicked. Verses 5 through 9 tell us, don't don't overestimate them either. Because our God is greater. The wicked is turned inward, and yet they do not see the greatness of God. Verses 5 through 6 is pretty much trying to measure the immeasurable, to describe the indescribable. That God's love extends to the heavens. That his justice is as firm and massive as the mountains. That his judgments are as unsearchable as the depths of the sea. That in light of those descriptions, you look back at verses 1 through 4 at the delusion of the wicked and you go, how are you not seeing this? How are you not seeing the beauty of this God, his love, his justice? How can you think that your puny sins and attempts to hide them will escape his perfect wisdom and justice? He is exposing the delusion of wickedness. And then in verses 7 through 9, he shifts again. He goes from this big view of God measuring the immeasurable to personalizing it. He goes from describing God's goodness in general to describing it personally and what it means for him. He says in verse 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You see, height and weight and depth are measurable objective things preciousness that is is a subjective measure to how much something matters to you and david is saying the steadfast love of god matters to me that rather than listening to transgression speaking deep in my heart i treasure the precious steadfast love of god that what god can provide for me is far greater than what the wicked can concoct against me See, David finds refuge in God, and as we talked about with the kids' message, it's like a mother bird sheltering its young with its wings. That when the wicked threaten God's people, they cannot penetrate the protection that God provides. See, in American culture, we tend to think that we're pretty safe, that we are in a safe place, that we don't have to worry about the wicked, whatever they may be. And so we trust in our nation, our military might the accumulation of our wealth, the affluence of our community. But true safety is found in God alone, not in these things. 
True safety is found in the refuge that he provides. Now, I've been told by people on various occasions that refuge is like a bad word. People don't like the word refuge for whatever reason. They said it just, it makes you think of a cave, like a bunker, like some dank underground bomb shelter. And yet God says that this refuge is not a dirty place. It is a place of delight where he provides bountiful feasts and fresh water from rivers to drink. It isn't your stereotypical doomsday shelter where you've got only old canned food and some bottled water that you hope doesn't taste like plastic. That God's refuge is overflowing with goodness because God is the giver of all good things. It is a place where we find life. That God gives us a refuge. That when we are confronted with the threats of the wicked, David is reminding himself of what his great God can provide for him. And so in this song, David paints this beautiful picture of God's greatness and how it secures refuge for his people. And it's the opposite of delusion. He is meditating on the wisdom of God, on the truth of God, and letting it shape who he is and how he's handling the scenario. Because David knows if he only had verses 1 through 4, If he only had the danger of the wicked, but not the greatness of God, he would be in trouble. He would be doomed. After all, if there was a bad guy plotting evil against you day and night, unconcerned about any retribution for their actions, I'd be worried. I would be worried if someone was plotting evil against me. And yet, David knows he does not have to face the wicked on his own. He knows he has a great God who shines the light of truth in our hearts to remind us that he is with us. Now that's a message that David surely needed to hear because in verses 10 through 12, it seems that David, unsurprisingly, is in a time of conflict. You hear about King David and you think about, you know, he defeated Goliath and he was king and he was the great king and most of the life of David is spent on the run where people were trying to attack him fleeing the city, living in actual caves, so he knew a thing or two about refuge. And so David, again, is in a time of trouble. He's being threatened by the wicked, and he needs to remember the greatness of God. And he cries out for help in verses 10 through 11. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. David feels the threat of the wicked and prays accordingly. There's a Christian phrase that's often used in prayer, and it's we pray according to God's will. According to God's will and in Jesus' name tend to be like the magic abracadabras at either end of our prayers, but they have deeper meanings inside of them. And according to God's will, when we pray according to God's will, this is what we see right here. That's what David is doing. David is praying based on who he knows God is. David first takes time to remind himself of the greatness of God's steadfast love and justice and then prays for God to be like that. He reflects on who God is and says, God, be like that. As believers, we can only pray verses 10 and 11 with confidence if we truly have verses 5 through 9 in our minds. 
We can only pray, help me, O God, if we believe that God is capable of helping us. And so David is praying according to the God uh, and his greatness that he knows him to be. So David is grounding his prayer in this wisdom of God. He knows the wicked are evil. He knows that they flatter themselves. He knows they plot evil on their beds. And yet he is saying that I know God is greater. No matter the threat from the wicked, God is greater than the wicked. That he will not be outwitted by them. He will not be fooled by them. God has provided a place of refuge for us. And God will save me by his mercy. See, David wants to be protected in this instance. We can understand that every instance matters to us. We can look back on our lives and think of problems we had years ago, and we remember that was a really big deal at that time. And it may be forgotten now, or it may just be a distant memory. And yet in the moment, David desperately wants relief. He desperately does not want to fall into the hands of the wicked to be stomped on by the foot of arrogance. And so David closes his song by reminding himself of the greatest truth, that God is victorious. Here's what he says in verse 12. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Now, that's the English Standard Version that I just read. And as I was looking at this passage this week, you read that and you're like, there the evildoers lie fallen. Where where is there? It doesn't say where there is. What's he talking about here? You look at the NIV, the New International Version that's in the pews, and it says this. See how the evildoers lie fallen. David is saying that the ultimate fate of the wicked is so sure that you can practically see it. In fact, David can look both directions. David can look back in the past and say, there the wicked lie fallen. At the bottom of the Red Sea is Pharaoh's dead body. Wherever Goliath ended up, he is decapitated and dead, and he has not risen to come back yet. That there in the past, in what God has done, he was faithful and defeated the wicked. He can look back and say, I know God has been faithful thus far. What would stop him from being faithful now? But he doesn't just look back. He can look forward to the promises of God's word and how God promises ultimate victory over the wicked. And if it's in the word of God, it's as good as done. And so he looks forward to the day when the wicked will ultimately be thrust down and judged by God. Not just that the wicked will fall. They will be thrust down in the wrath of God, never to rise. That is a comfort for God's people. That the wicked will ultimately perish. That evil will be punished. Justice will be served and God will be victorious in the end. And as we raise our arms in victory and get excited about that, there's a little nagging part of us that goes, what about the wickedness in me? What about the fact that transgression still speaks in my heart on occasion? Because I'm not all that different from the wicked. There are times that I forget that God is who he is and I doubt him. There are times that I sin stupidly and I should know better and I've just forgotten. There are times when I plan to sin and it's horrible. 
What does this mean for me? We are not that different from the wicked, and yet we have a hope that is different from the wicked because we have refuge in God. See, in God's unfathomable, heaven-high, steadfast love, he opened our eyes to see the delusions of our sins. He showed us the light of truth. He showed us what our wickedness deserves, and yet in his mercy, he said, here is the refuge for you in Jesus Christ. You can be sheltered under my wings, and I will take the wrath that you deserve. You can be sheltered knowing that Jesus took the punishment you deserved so that you can be safe and enjoy the delights of finding refuge in me. See, the truth is that our wickedness is thrust down. Our wickedness will not rise, but our wickedness was thrust down in the nails on the cross. Our wickedness was thrust down in the tomb where it will never rise. That it was punished, it was judged in Jesus. But we know that unlike the wicked, we will rise because we are united with Jesus Christ, the truly righteous one. That though he was thrust down into death for us, he rose from the dead. And so we know that no matter what threat we face from the wicked in this life, we have God's sure word of promise that we will rise in glory with Jesus because he is our ultimate refuge and delight. That in Jesus, we have the fountain of life, as it says in verse 9. In Jesus, we see the light, for he is the light of the world. In Jesus we realize that God is not a threat against our wickedness. God is a refuge for us because we have been covered in the righteousness of Jesus. And so when we know how great our God is, how sure our salvation is, we do not need to fear the threat of the wicked. There are wicked. They will plot evil. They will devise schemes against us, against God, and yet God has secured refuge for us. Like David, we may suffer for a while. We may be in literal caves like David was, but he knew that God was stronger than the wicked, that no matter how we may suffer momentarily in this life, we know that the wicked plot in vain and that God's justice and righteousness will be upheld, that we have a forever refuge to look forward to because we look back and see our sins fallen on the cross and we look forward and see the refuge provided in Jesus Christ. It is our hope in this life knowing that the wickedness is there and that we have been forgiven. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you are a just and righteous God. And though that frightens us for our sins deserve your just wrath, Lord, we cry out to you and we seek refuge in you and you alone for no good works done by us can save us, no good intentions done by us can save us. It is only you and your mercy and you extend it to us in Jesus Christ. And may we flee there and cling there and find delight there, O God. Lord, shelter us and protect us, and may your praises ever be on our lips. Amen.